the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 20. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1049. If you're a guest with us, we've been studying through the Gospel of Matthew. We've come to the end of chapter 20 this morning, and we'll begin reading in verse 29. I want to speak for a few minutes on this subject. Open our eyes. Matthew chapter 20. We'll begin reading in verse 29. And this is what the Word of God says. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping... Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight, and they followed him. How is your eyesight? This is a continual topic of conversation at the right place. As we continually looked for misplaced reader glasses, have you ever wondered how those get lost so easily? And as we struggle with the effects of aging, we are constantly talking about our eyesight. And as you study the Gospels, you find that eyesight has a continual topic for Jesus and his followers. And this is clearly seen in the text before us this morning. This short passage occupies a strategic place in Matthew's narrative of Jesus' life and ministry. With his arrest and trial and crucifixion imminent, these verses serve as the end of Jesus' itinerant ministry as he approaches Jerusalem and as he approaches the cross. And in these verses, we find one of the most compassionate displays of God's power as Jesus, on his way to the cross, responds to the request of two blind men to open their eyes. One commentator described it this way. The twelve would one day look back on the healing in Jericho and on all Jesus' other acts of mercy and realize that their Lord was never too preoccupied to be compassionate. He was never in too much of a hurry to heal the afflicted. He was never in too much agony himself to be insensitive to the agony of others. That realization itself would be one of the most important lessons that the disciples would ever learn from their master. An account of compassion, an account of mercy, and an account of grace. And in this passage, Matthew records for us an astonishing exchange as Jesus opens both physical eyes and spiritual eyes. Would you notice with me, first of all, in verse 29, the place. Matthew says, And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd 
followed them. Now remember, Jesus has just responded to the request of the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And Matthew records on the heels of that discussion that Jesus and his disciples resumed their journey to Jerusalem. And you will recall that it is in Jerusalem where the chief priests and the elders of the people will fulfill their plots against Jesus. In Jerusalem, it will be where Judas will betray him with a kiss and the temple police will arrest him. It is in Jerusalem where the disciples will desert him. It is in Jerusalem where Jesus will appear before the ruling Jewish council on false charges. They will condemn him to death and they will send him to Pontius Pilate. And Pilate will know that Jesus is innocent but lack the courage to acquit him. It is in Jerusalem where the chief priests will incite an angry mob to call for Jesus' crucifixion and Pilate will capitulate. It is in Jerusalem where Roman soldiers will mock and flog and crucify Jesus. And it is in Jerusalem where Jesus will rise again, where he will send his spirit and where he will build his church. And Jesus is approaching all of these events at this point in the text. He's finished his ministry in Galilee. He has ministered on the east side of the Jordan in Perea. And now he has recrossed the Jordan and he's entered Judah just above the Dead Sea near Jericho. The city of Jericho was a jewel in the barren wilderness that surrounds the Dead Sea. It was an oasis of fresh water and beautiful trees and productive crops of figs and citrus and other fruit. And travelers to Jerusalem would turn west at Jericho and they would walk approximately 15 miles one day's journey and arrive to Jerusalem. And this is how close Jesus is to the events that will take place in Jerusalem. And Matthew records in verse 29 that as Jesus and his disciples were going out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And it is here that Jesus encountered two blind men on the side of the road. Now you will notice in the text that Matthew's account says that Jesus is going out of Jericho. But Mark in his gospel reports that Jesus was coming to Jericho. And Luke says that Jesus drew near to Jericho. And what's happening here is that Jesus has probably entered the city and seen these two blind men. And as he's exiting the city, he now has this confrontation with them. You will also note that this is not the first time that Jesus had encountered the blind, and it wouldn't be his last encounter with him. But this encounter is different from all of the others because it comes directly on the heels of the request of the mother of the sons of Zebedee, and it illustrates Jesus' statement perfectly in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28 when he tells his disciples and he tells you and me that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so we see the place in verse 29. But secondly, in verse number 30, we see the plea. And notice what Matthew records. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now you'll notice in verse 30 
this word appears again, the word behold. And you'll recall that it is one of Matthew's favorite words to use in his gospel. And he uses this word repeatedly throughout his gospel to call special attention to something or someone that is about to take place. And in this context, he is calling our attention to the exchange that will take place between these two blind men who would ordinarily go unnoticed and the Lord Jesus Christ. And with the use of this word, behold, Matthew is saying to us, his readers, wake up, pay attention, something significant is about to take place here. And so after grabbing our attention, Matthew goes on to say simply, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. Now when you read Mark's account and Luke's account, they mention only one man. And, they, and Mark, in his account, mentions him by name. He identifies him as Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. He served as the spokesman for both of these blind men, and he was the sole focus on Mark and Luke's accounts. Now, here in Matthew's gospel, he is telling us about both of these men. And what we need to understand is that the blind were extremely common in the Near East, especially in the cities. None of them could work, and few had families who could or would support them. And so the majority of the blind in that day became beggars, and they would sit along the roadside just like these two men. They would spend their days outside of the city gates, sitting on the ground without shelter, hoping to receive help from any traveler who had passed by. But now notice what the text says in verse number 30. Because of their great need, Matthew says that when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out. Now Luke, in his gospel, he describes this scene more vividly. And this is what he writes in Luke chapter 18, verses 36 to 38. And just listen to his descriptive words and get the picture in your mind. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He heard the name of Jesus. And he heard that Jesus was passing by. And his immediate reaction was to cry out. And this phrase, cry out, is used for any sort of screaming or shout of anguish. It is used of the rantings of people who have lost their mind, and it is used of the cries of a woman in childbirth. The word was also used of the Canaanite woman near Tyre and Sidon who cried out for Jesus to heal her daughter in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 22. It is used of the crowd shouting for Jesus' crucifixion in Mark 15, verses 13 to 14. And it is used of Jesus crying out from the cross in Matthew chapter 27, in verse 50. This is the kind of shout that these two blind men uttered above the roar of the crowd at the top of their lungs in complete desperation for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, I want you to just think about it. Can you picture this scene in your mind? This cry from these two men is astonishing. Neither one of them have ever seen Jesus. 
Neither one of them have ever seen the display of his miracle working power. All that these two men knew of Jesus was from rumor. And yet, in their cry, we see that these two men knew exactly who Jesus was, and they knew exactly the kind of authority that Jesus possessed. John MacArthur described it this way, The amazing thing about these two men was not their physical blindness, which was common in their day, but their spiritual sight, which is uncommon in any day. Physically, they could not see anything, but spiritually, they saw a great deal. Now notice their cry. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The word Lord that they used was a common term of honor used to address not only dignitaries, but anyone who deserved special respect and reverence. And their use of this word in and of itself did not indicate that they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But when you take this word Lord that they used as a sign of respect and you put it with their plea for mercy, along with their messianic title they used of Jesus, son of David, this cry from these two men clearly shows that they recognized who Jesus was and they believed that Jesus was the only hope for their condition and their situation. And so they cried, Lord, and then they cried, Matthew says, have mercy on us. Now just think of that request. Despite their great need, these men knew they deserved nothing from Jesus. They acknowledged in this cry, have mercy on us, of their unworthiness to receive help, and they humbly placed themselves entirely on Jesus' mercy. I love how one translator translated this phrase, have mercy on us. He argued these men were really saying to Jesus, Jesus, don't give us what we deserve. Give us your mercy. So Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, Matthew uses this title for Jesus over and over, and he begins by describing Jesus with this title in the very first verse of his gospel. It is a messianic title, and it's often used in connection with the healing power of Jesus. It is the most common title in Jewish culture for the promised deliverer. It is not only a messianic title, it is a royal title denoting Jesus' lineage from the family of King David and his right to reestablish David's throne and rule over the coming kingdom of God. And when you go back to the Old Testament and you study the life of David and you study the use of this title, Son of David, you realize that David was Israel's great king, but his kingdom came to an end. And eventually the kingdom of God was divided into two and both kingdoms were conquered and held in bondage and captivity for many years. But in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made a promise to David that his throne would be established once again and one like David would be restored to the kingdom and the throne of God and would rule and reign over God's kingdom forever. His reign would never come to an end. 
And God made this promise to David. And then God, through the prophets, prophesied that this promise would come true. And the prophets of the Old Testament saw the coming of the son of David as one much greater than David himself, the one who would be able to eat to defeat hostile armies and overthrow every enemy and heal every disease and conquer sin and death itself. And the prophet Amos prophesied this in Amos chapter 9 and verse 11. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. And according to the prophet Isaiah, the Messiah would usher in a new day. And in the fullness of his kingdom, which is still future, the blind would see, the deaf would hear, the lame would leap, and the mute would sing for joy. And the prophet Isaiah prophesied this in Isaiah chapter 35, verses 4 through 6. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For water breaks forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. What a great word from the prophet Isaiah. And these two blind men, they knew the history they knew the promise of God to David. They knew what the prophets proclaimed and prophesied, that one greater than David was coming to reestablish the throne of David and to rule and to reign forever. And these blind men, through their cry, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David, understand Jesus' identity. They see him for who he really is. And they rightly cry out in their unworthiness. And they rightly understand his worthiness for praise and worship and honor. And every single Jew in that crowd on the outskirts of Jericho who heard these two blind men cry out this statement and refer to Jesus as the son of David, knew that these two blind men thought that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And friends, don't miss this. In their blindness, they saw what the crowds and the disciples could not see. They saw Jesus for who he really is. So we not only see the place and the plea, in verse 31, we see the perseverance. Now notice what happens. And the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more. Don't you love that? They cried out all the more, Lord have mercy on us, son of David. 
Notice what Matthew says happened. The crowd rebuked these two men. It is the same word. You can't miss this connection. It is the same word that is used in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 13. If you'll recall where the disciples rebuked the children and their parents for the parents bringing their children to Jesus and interrupting him. And like the disciples with the children, this crowd did not want anyone or anything to delay Jesus entering Jerusalem. Because they thought that as soon as Jesus entered Jerusalem, he was going to overthrow the Roman government and establish his kingdom. And there was no way they were going to let two outcasts of society interrupt Jesus and interrupt their journey to victory. And notice what happens in the text in verse 31. The crowd didn't just rebuke the two blind men. They ordered them to be silent. They rebuked them. They prevented them from getting to Jesus. And then they silenced them. Can you just see the cruelty in their response? Everyone in that crowd was better off physically than these two men. Everyone in that crowd was better off economically than these two men. Everyone in that crowd was better off socially than these two men. And yet that crowd, in their own selfishness and pride, did everything they could to stand in the way of these two men coming to Jesus. And you thought we lived in cancel culture. But notice the text. I love this portion of the text. These two men were undeterred by the rebuke and the command of the crowd to remain silent. And Matthew says that after they were rebuked, they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And don't miss what they were doing. These men had tremendous need in their life. And they knew the one that was passing them by was the only hope for them. They knew that Jesus was the only one who could meet their needs physically and spiritually. And they were illustrating a principle by their renewed cry for mercy from Jesus. Of the principle that Jesus taught us about prayer in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 verses 7 and 8. And this is what Jesus says in those two verses. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And do you see what these two men did? They cried out to Jesus. They were rebuked. They were silenced. They didn't give up. They didn't throw in the towel. They persevered. They cried out even louder. They would not be silenced. They would not be stopped. They were coming to Jesus. And they weren't going to let anything deter them. They asked. They seeked. They knocked. They were persistent and persevering in their faith. And I want you to notice in the context of this passage, it was their persevering faith that received the mercy of God. They did not 
give up. So we not only see the place, we not only see the plea, we not only see the perseverance, finally, we see the pity. Notice carefully in verses 32 to 34. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately, immediately, they recovered their sight and followed him. In verse 32, Matthew records that Jesus heard the desperate cry of these two men. And look at what Matthew says Jesus did. He stopped, he called out to them, and he asked them, what do you want me to do for you? I love how Charles Swindoll framed Jesus' actions at this point in the account. He says, while the exuberant crowd seemed to care only about themselves, and while the disciples wrangled over who was greatest among them, Jesus turned his attention to the lowliest members of society. He stooped down, he condescended, and he served them. He illustrates beautifully Matthew 20 to 20, verse 28. I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Now Luke in his gospel, provides more detail at this point in the account. And this is what Luke says happened in Luke 18 and verse 40. Luke says that Jesus stopped and he commanded someone in the crowd to bring the men to him. Mark, in his account, adds even more significant detail to Jesus' exchange with these two men. And in Mark chapter 10, verses 49 to 50, this is how Mark describes it. Now listen, you got to picture this in your mind, what's about to take place. It is amazing. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, this is what the crowd, people in the crowd said to the blind men. Take heart. Get up. He's calling you. Can you picture yourself in one of those two men sitting by the roadside, hearing that Jesus, your only hope, is passing by, and you cry out only to have all of the crowd that's surrounding him to rebuke you and to tell you to leave him alone, that he's too important for you and too busy for you, and you should just sit there and be quiet? Only to cry out louder at the top of your lungs over the roar of the crowd. To finally hear somebody in the crowd say, take heart. You've been noticed. You who are unnoticeable have been noticed by Jesus. You who are an outcast of society are being called to Jesus. You, who have no hope other than Jesus, have found hope in Him. Take heart. Get up. He's calling you. And listen to what Mark says that they did. I love this. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. The cloak was probably one of the very few possessions 
that these men had. And they threw it away to gain Jesus. And Matthew says that when the blind men were brought to Jesus, Jesus asked them, what do you want me to do for you? And in verse 33, Matthew says that the two men say to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. Now, the text doesn't tell us how long these men were blind. But it does tell us that their one compelling desire above all other desires was to see. And notice Jesus' compassion. What do you want me to do for you? What a great question. It'd be a similar question that he would ask you and me this morning. Friend, what would you have me do for you? Then in verse 34, look at what Matthew says. He says that Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and they followed him. Now, now look at the context and see exactly what's happening and how it all fits together here. What did they ask from Jesus? Mercy. They asked for mercy from Jesus. And what does the text say that Jesus did when he responded to their request? He showed them pity. Jesus extended mercy to them. Jesus extended pity to them. Jesus extended compassion and grace and loving kindness to them. And Jesus did it, look at the text, by touching their eyes. Nobody touched the blind in that day. They were afraid that they would be defiled if they touched the blind. And Jesus, in an extraordinary move of compassion and pity and loving kindness, touched their eyes. The, the psalmist, over and over, gives praise to God for the kind of compassion and mercy and pity and loving kindness that Jesus showed to these two blind men and that Jesus shows to you and me. And in Psalm 145, <clears throat> verses 8 and 9, this is what the psalmist writes. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all. And His mercy is over all that He has made. This is who Jesus is. This is who God is. A God of grace. A God of mercy. A God who is slow to anger. A God who abounds in steadfast love. A God who is good over all that He has made, including you and me. And these two blind men experienced this goodness and this graciousness and this mercy and this loving kindness from the hands of Jesus. He showed them pity and He touched their eyes. And do you know that Luke in his gospel, he refers to Jesus standing up and quoting the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 and 2 stating that one of the very reasons why Jesus came to this earth from the glory and the splendor of heaven was to do what he did for these two men. And in Luke chapter 4 and verse 18, this is what Jesus proclaims quoting the prophet Isaiah. 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to restore sight to the blind. And this is what Jesus did for these two men. Now notice what the text says. Matthew records in verse 34 that immediately after Jesus touched their eyes, they recovered their sight. Immediately. He didn't tell them to go sow a financial seed and believe that they would get their eyesight. He didn't tell them to stand up and do some kind of crazy dance or ritual. He didn't tell them to fall backwards into one another's arms. He extended compassion, love, and mercy, stooped down, touched their eyes, and immediately they were healed. And that's what happens when you encounter the Son of God. It's immediate. Change happens immediately. And notice what Matthew says. They recovered their sight. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine if you were these two men? Again, we don't know how long they couldn't see. But up to this point, all they were able to see was darkness. And they were told, take heart, get up. He's calling for you. And somebody in the crowd brought him to Jesus. And all they could see was darkness. And then Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes and they went from darkness one second to light the next. And the very first thing they saw with their eyes was the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine if you were them? Can you imagine what it would have been like in that moment that the very first thing you were able to see was Jesus? Paul understood it. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And what Jesus did for those two men, He does for you and me in salvation. He removes the darkness and the blindness of our eyes spiritually so that the first thing we see spiritually is the light of the glory of God in the face of God's Son, Jesus Christ. But now look at the text. And don't miss it. These men didn't just get physical recovery of their sight. Matthew alludes to the fact that they were looking for spiritual sight as well. Because look at how he ends the narrative. He says that once they recovered their sight, they followed Jesus. Now Luke, in his count, he gives us great reason to believe that these two men were restored both physically and spiritually. This is what Luke said in Luke 18 and verse 43. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him. Listen, listen to the text. Glorifying God and all the people when they saw it gave praise to God. He glorified God. He followed Jesus. Mark reports an additional detail in Mark chapter 10 and verse 52. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and he followed him on the way. Listen to how Mark said it. 
Jesus said to these two blind men, your faith has made you well. That phrase, made well, refers to any kind of rescue or deliverance, including deliverance from physical affliction. But it is also the most common New Testament term for salvation, for the deliverance of sin through Christ. And that is the meaning that is used here in this context. Jesus restored their sight physically, but listen, friend, he made them well spiritually. And notice what Jesus said to them. Faith was the means by which they both received their sight and by which they received their salvation. Don't miss the point of this text, friends. Physical blindness is used in this text to picture spiritual blindness. And just as there was spiritual blindness in Jesus' day, there's spiritual blindness in our day. And I would say to you, there's spiritual blindness in this very room, this very moment. Our world is full of spiritual ignorance and unbelief. And Jesus described to Nicodemus this kind of world in John chapter 3, verses 19 to 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest their works be exposed. That's the world that we live in. And the Bible says that this world is going to get increasingly darker as we get closer to the return of Jesus. And that's why you're so often discouraged. That's why you're so often losing heart in your soul, because you feel the thickness of the darkness like a shadow coming over your life. And Jesus is the answer to the darkness. He is the light of the world that has come into our world of darkness to open spiritually blind eyes so that they can, like these two men, see the light of the glory of God in his face. And I want to remind you this morning that every single person in this room and every single person who has ever been born into this world has been born spiritually blind to the things of God. By nature, we are sinners. And because of our sinful nature, we cannot see the realities of God. We do not see it, and we cannot see it. And it's not because there's something wrong with our eyes. It's because there's something wrong with our souls. In fact, the Bible describes us as being doubly blind. Listen. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 and 23, that our sin blinds us to the things of God and it holds us in bondage. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, the Bible says that Satan adds to that blindness and he blinds our eyes so that we cannot see the light of the gospel. There's spiritual scales over our eyes. And the Bible's clear, friends, until God opens our eyes, until God removes these spiritual scales from our eyes, from our hearts, from our minds, we will never be able to see spiritually. Never. 
we will wander around in the darkness of our sin and in the darkness of this world. But like these two blind men, Jesus came to rescue us from that darkness and that blindness. And this was the Apostle Paul's testimony. When he stood in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 26, before Festus and King Agrippa, he recounted to them how the Lord Jesus Christ removed the blindness of his eyes and commissioned him to go to the Gentiles and to give testimony to the Gentiles, to you and me, of the saving grace of God and how he opens spiritually blind eyes. And this is what he said at the height of his testimony before Festus and King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26 and verse 18. He sent me to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And that's what Jesus does for spiritually blind people. He turns you from darkness to light. He turns you from the power of Satan to the power of God. He gives you the forgiveness of your sins. He gives you mercy. He gives you grace. He gives you love. And if that were not enough, He gives you a place in His family, the church. This is what Jesus has come to do. To give sight to the blind. And you will never have 20-20 spiritual vision Apart from Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you are able to see and discern and understand the things of God, if Jesus is precious to you and excellent to you and sweet to you, it's evidence that your eyes have been opened. But if Jesus is not precious to you, if Jesus is not excellent to you, if Jesus is not the treasure above all other treasures, if you're not able to perceive and understand and know the things of God, you remain in your blindness. And you need to be like these two blind men and cry out, Lord, have mercy on me, son of David. In this passage, we find one of the most compassionate displays of God's power as Jesus on his way to the cross stops and responds to the request of these two blind men to open their eyes. All of us need our eyes open this morning. If you're a Christian, would you consider the faith of these two blind men? Would you consider their faith Christian? Does their perseverance in faith convict you? With all of our learning, with all of our libraries, with all of our listening to sermons and all of our resources, the question really is, at the end of the day, do we possess the simple persevering faith that these two men exhibited? Or are you easily defeated in your faith? Are you easily discouraged in your faith? Are you easily distracted in your faith? Or are you persevering in your faith? Oh, Christian, don't let anyone keep you from crying out to the Lord. 
Pursue Him diligently in spite of all of the voices surrounding us trying to tell us to be quiet, trying to distract us, trying to get us to give up and to stay discouraged. Oh, Christian, talk to yourself and persevere in your faith like these two men. And Christian, would you consider once more these two blind men? They trusted in the sovereign power and mercy of Jesus to cure their blindness. Are you trusting in that same sovereign power and mercy to meet your needs? You know those needs that you brought into this room this morning. Those needs that have you discouraged in your soul. Do you find yourself like these Two men humbly confessing your need for mercy and boldly believing in his power to work in your life and to meet your needs and to answer your prayers? Are you trusting him to do for you only what he can do for you? Are you Christian? And Christian, would you recall how Mark in his account names one of the men whom Jesus healed? And while Bartimaeus was unknown while he was a blind beggar, it's possible that later he became highly respected and known in the early church. And that's why Mark referred to him by name in his gospel as if saying to his readers and to the rest of the church, one of these men that Jesus healed is our brother in Christ, our friend, who's very dear to us, Bartimaeus. And Christian, would you learn from this? That this is a reminder for all of us to love people, to notice the unnoticeable, to touch the untouchable, to welcome the outcasts and bring them in. This is what we're called to do as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're so caught up in ourselves, even in a place like this. As soon as the last prayer is given, we're thinking about ourselves and how fast we can get out of here and how many people do we pass by who are unnoticed by the rest of the congregation. And they need to be welcomed in just as you were welcomed in. They need to be touched just as you were touched. Oh, but you're in such a hurry to get to Jerusalem. That you've missed the opportunity in Jericho. And who knows? In God's providence, the unnoticed, the untouchable, the outcast might just become your brother or sister in Christ. If you're an unbeliever, do you realize truly this morning how spiritually blind you are? Friend, would you come to Jesus as these two blind men came to him? They never saw Jesus' miracles. How could they? And yet they believed. They believed. That's why Paul says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith does not come by seeing. Faith comes by hearing you don't need to see in order to believe you need to believe in order to see you need to have faith would you unbeliever 
believe in Christ as your Lord and Savior today? Would you confess your sin to him and ask for his forgiveness? Would you turn away from your sin in repentance? And would you call upon the name of the Lord today to forgive you and to save you of your sins? Would you cry out like these two men, Lord, have mercy on me. Open my eyes. I'm tired of living and wandering in the darkness. Help me to see. And would you, unbeliever, like these two men, for the first time see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He is here today to rescue you and save you from your sins. I'll close with J.C. Ryle. He says, let us see in this simple fact the importance of diligence in the use of means of grace. Let us never neglect the house of God. Never forsake the assembling of ourselves with God's people. Never omit the reading of our Bibles. Never let drop the practice of private prayer. These things, no doubt, will not save us without the grace of the Holy Ghost. Thousands make use of them and remain dead in their trespasses and sins, but it is just in the use of these things that souls are converted and saved. They are the ways in which Jesus walks. It is they who sit by the wayside who are likely to be healed. Do we know the diseases of our souls? Do we feel any desire to see the great physician? If we do, we must not wait in idleness saying, if I am to be saved, I shall be saved. We must arise and we must go to the road where Jesus walks. Who can tell, but he will soon pass by for the last time. Let us sit daily by the roadside. There's a message and a warning for all of us in this room from this text today. Lord, have mercy. Open our eyes. Let's pray.